All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, speaking to you from the second day of March in the year 2021. And I do want to thank all of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel. Also, want to continue to encourage you to send along your questions, comments, whatever uh, whatever comments you might have about our show, send them along to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. And uh, we're always interested in hearing what you're thinking about our show. Uh, we do want to thank our sponsors because without them there would be no show. Our sponsors for this week, SK Mining Corp., Novo Resources, Sitka Gold Corp., Eloro Resources, Irving Resources, Hand and Metals, Fury Gold Mines, Great Bear Resources, and Lion One Metals. I've titled today's show, The Future of Money is Gold. Alistair McLeod, Chris Taylor, and Michael Oliver return as guests today. Alistair will explain why gold, not cryptocurrencies, is destined to replace the fiat money system. Because cryptos can only act, he says, as stores of value so long as fiat exists. So rather than cryptocurrencies, Alistair will explain how a world transacting with monetary gold and monetary gold substitutes... Uh, can actually work and why it will work and why he thinks it will come back into being. I'm sure there's a lot of skeptics out there on that issue, but we'll want to hear what he has to say. He noted in a recent article uh, that he wrote titled The Future of Money is Gold that some 1,800 years ago, money not backed by gold in Roman law was ruled to be fraudulent. He believes that a return to moral money uh, will be reinstated in America for the first time since Nixon instituted legalized counterfeit money in 1971. When he, detra- when he detached gold from money, that was on August 15th of that year, and I can remember it so well as, a, as an older guy, reading about it in the New York Times as I traveled from Morristown, New Jersey, into Manhattan on that particular day. Well, I hope to ask Alistair why he uh, thinks politicians will do an about-face from it current immoral system that allows them to buy votes by stealing money from one group of people and giving it to the other. Uh, We'll hear what Alistair has to say. Not surprisingly to those of you who have heard Alistair many times in this show, he claims that global fiat money now sits on the precipice of self-destruction. But I want to know what there is that will prevent the elite from devising a new system that allows them to continue to rob those citizens it considers deplorable and expendable. Those and related topics will be explored by Thalester. Certainly, various governments and large banks in bed with governments around the world are hinting at cryptocurrency. 
One thing we can be sure about is that governments will do some very nasty things to protect the elite who are increasingly taking power away from the common folks for their own abuse and enrichment. So the big question is how can we best protect ourselves against uh, our increasingly intrusive government that seeks to strip away our Bill of Rights? Certainly a major reason we are losing those rights and a major reason why there is such a redistribution of income from the middle classes to the elite who control government is that our government and banking system have opted for this fiat monetary system that allows those who control the printing presses to enrich themselves rather than allowing the markets to reward people according to their merits and accomplishments. Um, well, one of the ways that we are trying to protect ourselves is to own honest money, meaning silver and gold, both in physical form as well as in the mining shares. One of the most successful companies we have had as a sponsor to this show is Great Bear Resources. and. I'm really happy to tell you that Chris Taylor, the president and CEO of that company, will be with me in just a few minutes after our first commercial break to give us a uh, to give us an update on this multi-million ounce high-grade deposit uh, in Ontario. My own belief is that the market is not by any means fully pricing in the value of this company's exceptional Dixie high-grade gold discovery. For various reasons, the project looks like. Uh, what is termed uh, a tier one gold project with perhaps a few hundred thousand ounces of annual gold production at relatively low cost. Now, I'm looking forward to what Chris has to say and thinking about uh, what the company's future holds. But right now, let's set aside the future and um, talk to Michael Oliver and say, see what he's thinking right now. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. It's always good to have you every other week. We'll take you every other week if we can't get you every week, but uh, thanks so much for being with us again. Um, yeah, so gold is having a rally today. It's been a, a lot of gold bugs have been pretty depressed. Um, gold, you know, everything else is going up. Uh, commodities are going up. A lot of commodities are going up. Uh, I know copper has been on a tear, but those monetary metals have just not done very well. In fact, they've been sort of sinking lower. How are you seeing gold, and and then maybe comment on silver as well? Well, on the, the relationship to these other markets, um, there is a good solid one, and that's with T-bonds. I'll get into that in a minute. But as far as commodities go, they're lagged to gold. Gold broke mm. out, you know, even on a price chart basis. So, I mean, we went long uh, in 2016, early at 1140, and got doubly long in late 2018 as price moved back up to 1200 area. And then it broke out on the price charts uh, in the summer of 2019 when it got into the upper 1300s. Okay. Well, what were commodities doing all that time? They were laboring mm-hmm. yeah. in, a, in a range, a very depressed price range. I mean, they, almost any chart you want to look at, copper, oil, uh, grains, etc. So they're following gold. They're not, and it's not an issue of whether gold is responding to their upside. It led them out of the hole. Mm-hmm. It said, you guys are coming out of the hole because you're commodities, and there's, there's monetary inflation out here, and ultimately it will affect you, and it did, finally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're lagged to gold. Don't view them as a leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that gold is out of sync with them right now, fine. I, I suspect our work suggests that a lot of the commodities that have exploded over the last six to nine months, the grains, copper, uh, crude oil, could enter a couple-month period of congestion back mm-hmm. and forth. In other words, where those who are long don't make any money. 
Mm-hmm. They get dips, and it doesn't go anywhere on the upside. It just spins its wheels for uh, several months. That looks technically justified. It's not negative. It's just mm-hmm. it had a huge explosion. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, it looks to us like gold is ripe for the upturn. We continue to define gold's long-term trend as bullish, with not, it would not even being threatened by this now eight-month pullback, mm-hmm. which has uh, given back all of what? 15% in gold. Eight uh-huh. months it took them to give back 15%. Uh-huh. Uh, S&P sometimes does that in two or three months if you go back over yep. the last 10 years. But the gold people are very nervous, and the reason is the gold miners are like a wild dog on a leash is the way we describe them. When gold goes up, they go crazy upside. They outpace gold. When gold goes down, they go crazy on the downside. Now, today, for example, gold's up a little bit, and the gold and silver miners are up sharply today. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, it, it's that kind of like we're up almost 4% in GDX today. Mm-hmm. Well, gold's only up, uh, you know, 10 bucks. <laughs> so yeah. uh, anyway, but we think that the gold bottom of this intermediate pullback that's been going on since the August high has either been seen or likely to be seen very soon. We held, we hold open the possibility there's a sharp drop that everybody seems to think is going to happen which we, we are not at all confident it's going to happen. Instead, it's still been arm wrestling downside. Uh, but watch the T-bonds, because if you, if you want to find a market that's pretty correlated well to gold, especially over the last, let's say, year, the T-bonds peaked basically in price, low in yields, back in the summer. That's when gold peaked. T-bond prices have been eroding to the downside and recently had a sharp drop. That's over the last several weeks ago. Uh, What happened to gold? Gold's been in a downside since August high, just like T-bonds, and had a fairly sharp drop to a marginal new low a week ago, below the November Mm -hmm. low. Um, So they were very coincidental. In fact, if you look at it like a weekly bond chart, T-bond futures, and a weekly gold chart, they almost look like the same market. Mm-hmm. And what's the S&P been doing all during that time? Going up. Mm-hmm. Okay. So those who were talking about uh, interest rates dropping, helping the stock market, in other words, bonds will rally that will help the stock market. We argue that if bonds rally, it's likely going to be because the stock market has a wobble and stumbles downside. Uh-huh. And we suspect strongly that if T-bonds have bottomed, and I think they have bottomed last week, if they have bottomed gold is likely to bottom very soon or already has because mm-hmm. of their close correlation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the correlation is good. And I think the reason is this. It's this simple. And it, this ultimately will not hold up. Ultimately, the T-bonds will trend opposite gold uh, as rates rise with high inflation. But for now, they're still linked. They're inverse markets to the stock market. Big asset managers want to place money in a safe place when the stock market wobbles. And a lot of the bigger ones are very cognizant right now of the inflation horizon. Mm-hmm. If the stock market wobbles, they're going to shove money into T-bonds and gold. Mm-hmm. And they don't have the same kind of fears that most gold stock investors have, which is when it goes down, they're scared. These guys look at the downside as an opportunity. And I suspect that if the T-bonds, in fact, have made their low, and I think they did, uh, then gold is going to make it slow real soon, or already has, possibly last mm-hmm. night uh, at 17.04 on the April contract. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I'd watch the T-bonds right now and uh, watch the S&P for a downside wobble and mm-hmm. a possibly a start of a bear market. Not mm-hmm. a crash, 
We don't think the stock market's going to do that. It did it last year. If the market tops, if the S&P tops now with all the great news out there of the, you know, the end of the crisis and so forth, uh, watch for a downturn in the stock market and mm-hmm. watch, therefore, that for an inverse move in the T-bonds and gold. Mm-hmm. So I guess what, we did, what could cause the uh, departure, uh, a breakdown of this correlation between gold and T-bonds would be inflation that starts to get out of hand. Um, yeah. that, uh, that, that, that would cause the uh, interest rates to rise dramatically, and then people would yeah. keep buying gold and maybe silver and some of the commodities in order to try to protect yep. themselves to hedge yep. their, their purchasing power. I guess that's what would have to happen here, and there would be a loss of confidence. I'm guessing perhaps the dollar would come under some pressure then, too. Yes, I think it would reflect that as well. Um, Alistair's uh, comments that you mentioned at the beginning here, uh, we, uh, you know, we're technical analysts, but uh, sure. fundamentally, I fully agree with his assessment that the ultimate resolution is a reality-based resolution and a crisis, mm-hmm. global crisis, such that gold-backed money does come back. There mm-hmm. is no alternative. Mm-hmm. Uh, any other alternative you think is out there, like Bitcoin, uh, you, I think you're dreaming. Uh, mm-hmm. The ultimate reality is that the the major foreign, the major fiat currencies get into crisis mode, which I think they are, not just the dollar versus the euro, but I'm talking about all of them as a package Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. of the inflation that's undergoing in in all the major developed countries, Mm -hmm. monetary inflation, ultimately leaves only one solution, and that's basically uh, real assets, and Mm -hmm. uh, gold is its leader of that pack. Mm -hmm. Well, exactly, and uh, well, you know, we need uh, both the technical expertise that you bring, Michael, because that allows us to, you know, in real time, uh, more closer to the action to know how we should be trading, where, where we should have our, our money at any given time. And as you point out, there will come a time here when there is a departure between that, that correlation between gold and, and T-bonds, uh, and then you're not going to want to be hiding away in T-bonds. You're going to want to be uh, far you, away from those words, things. The two alternatives will dwindle down to one, <laughs> Yeah, gold and, and commodities <laughs> behind it, yeah. Yeah, I'm afraid that's uh, that's probably what's going to happen, and it's not something that I look forward to because I think along with it will come a lot of other, you know, consternation and difficulties in our lives. But nonetheless, it is what it is, and we want to protect ourselves as best we can. I've always said I own gold not because I'm hoping for a crisis, but I know it's going to come. So we mm-hmm. want to th- uh, thank you so much again, Michael, for being with us, and uh, we'll do it again in another couple of weeks. Thank you. All right, folks. Well, we do have to go to break. Don't go away, though, because Chris Taylor was going to be with us, and he's going to talk about Great Bear Resources, what that company has in store. I believe that Great Bear Resources has a lot more on the upside, and um, the market is overlooking a lot of the upside. I believe that's the case, and we'll hear what Chris has to say. I, I'm guessing he agrees with that, but we'll want to know why. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Chris Taylor. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Fury Gold Mines is a Canadian exploration and development company committed to aggressively growing its scalable, high-grade gold assets across its 3.5 million ounce portfolio. Led by a management team of proven explorers and developers, Fury aims to generate major catalysts and performance per share by advancing exploration campaigns across Canada. Fury is well positioned to create value for investors with low risk, 
development growth and the potential for a new major discovery. Fury Gold Mines trades on the TSX and NYSE American under Fury. To learn more, go to FuryGoldMines.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Really pleased to be with Chris Taylor. He is a structural geologist and economic geologist and uh, a mining entrepreneur. Over 20 years of experience, he's been on this show a number of times in the past to talk about uh, one of the biggest success stories in the exploration sector in the last number of years, and that's with Great Bear Resources. And um, really, their Dixie project in Ontario in the Red Lake District, uh, really a great story. One that, uh, well, this was a stock that was on a tear during uh, 2019. It was just really as hot as could be from, I think, 46 cents or something like that. We picked it up in our newsletter, and it ran upwards towards $20 in Canadian money anyway. Uh, And then it's uh, fallen back and and sort of gone sideways for a while, even though it uh, it, the company's been on a very aggressive drill program, uh, and it's one of the more... I think one of the one of the more spectacular discoveries in uh, certainly in the last ten years or so, uh, Chris. I'm really glad that you could join me today. Thanks. Yeah, it's great to talk to you, Jay. I hope you still get congratulatory emails for your um, your subscribers that listened to you when you made the first recommendation. On Great Bear. <laughs> well, the congratulations go to you, Chris, and those people that made it happen. So. Uh, you know, and um, I, I give uh, Gwen Preston credit more than myself because she's the one I first learned about it from. You know, credit always has to be multiple uh, because there's so many people that make it happen, as you know, but nobody has been more key to the success at Dixie Lake, I would dare say. Although you're a pretty humble guy, you'll probably uh, certainly give credit to others where credit is due as well. But it does take a lot of people to find a deposit and to bring it into the stage where it is now. Really, a very developed project, uh, but let's get into what you're doing. I guess, first of all, we should just, uh, for people that might not be familiar with the story, GBR, it trades in Toronto under that symbol, GBR. You can buy it down here in the States under GTBAF, as I have. Chris, I correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I think you have about 56.2 million shares out. And earlier today, I saw it at around uh, $14. I haven't looked at it in the last couple of hours. The market's been pretty hot. But uh, $14 or $15 in Canadian money, I suppose, giving you a market cap around eight, $800 million in Canadian money. Um, does that sound right? Yeah, that's about right. Uh, it's certainly come a long way from uh, a few years ago when we first uh, had some of these conversations. Yeah, it sure has. And uh, so let's, let's talk about what you're doing here Um Refresh our memories, the memories of some uh, people, and maybe some people that have not followed your story, but now's a good time to do it because the stock has been treading sideways, but you have an awful lot going on yet. But just talk to our listeners a little bit uh, about the dimensions of the Dixie 
gold discovery along the LP fault structure anyway, because that's the main focus. Uh, you do have something else that's very exciting too, but the LP fault structure, which is, I, I think of it as a tier one uh, gold discovery. Uh, but can you talk to us a little bit about the dimensions of the Dixie, the grades that you're seeing, uh, and how it might compare to some of the other comparably sized uh, projects in Canada, like Detour Lake and Malartic, and the Malartic project, yeah, for no example. Problem. Yeah, I'm happy to, uh, Jay. Uh, yeah, it's uh, the Dixie project is located in uh, the Red Lake area of Ontario, so it's not actually far from the U.S. border. Uh, you mm-hmm. can probably drive there in about four or five hours just by uh, heading north, uh, you know, as is usual with uh, Americans headed to Canada. Uh, but the Red Lake areas, uh, it's known as the high-grade capital of Canada. So one of the most profitable gold mines in the world for probably a better part of a decade was the Red Lake gold mine that was operated by Gold Corp. And we made this discovery, uh, the LP fault discovery at Dixie, uh, about two years, not even two years ago. Um, you know, so somewhere around about 20 months ago, uh, we put the first drill hole into it. And uh, what we found is a big structure uh, that goes right through the crust, down to the base of the crust. And uh, roughly a couple billion years ago, this would have been a major focus of gold mineralization. So we've now got on the project over 400 drill holes, uh, all of which have hit gold uh, into the LP fault and the adjacent zones collectively. And it's amazing to think that uh, for a target that uh, in nobody's uh, mind didn't even exist uh, two years ago, uh, now we're looking at something that is uh, four to five kilometers long where every drill hole hits gold. And uh, we've got drilling now from surface, uh, gold right at surface, uh, down to about uh, 400 to 500 meters depth. And we just keep seeing predictable geology, predictable gold mineralization, really nice grades. Like, it's incredible to think that uh, sitting just a few meters below this thin kind of gravel cover, um, you have this spine of high-grade gold, and that's often in 10 grams, 20 grams, sometimes up to several hundred grams, and it's surrounded by these wide envelopes, uh, sometimes 50 meters, 100 meters, even two or 300 meters wide of this lower-grade sort of bulk tonnage mineralization around that. So the dimensionality to your question is similar in size to the two biggest gold mines in Canada. One of them is Canadian Malarctic, and one of them mm-hmm. is Detour Lake. And those are both big, low-grade deposits. Uh, they both transacted for 3 to $4 billion uh, Canadian uh, worth of value. and uh, But they didn't have the high-grade distribution that we're looking at here at Dixie, and that's what really makes our discovery so interesting. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I'm somewhat familiar with both of those deposits, um, the Canadian Malartic as well as the Detour, and I don't, I don't remember ever seeing the kind of spectacular grades uh, that you've reported. Uh, so, you, I mean, that's why I think the market maybe isn't fully understanding what you have there yet. Um, I, don't, I think that once you come out with a, with a resource and people start to see the grades along with these incredibly bulk mineable widths, uh, that the market's going to start to look at you differently. Do you do you agree with that? Yeah, I think the market is used to evaluating normal gold discoveries, and usually, uh, especially if it's high grade, usually a body will be a hundred meters to two hundred, maybe three hundred meters long, uh, a few meters wide, three meters wide, five meters wide, and uh, it, it, it's just a small volume. Whereas what we're 
drilling here is uh, kilometers uh, in length. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's satellite deposits beside that too. So what you need to do is think about that sort of tier one categorization that you mentioned uh, earlier. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the thing about tier one mines, they're uh, big mines. Uh, they produce gold for many, many years and they do it at low cost. And there's only, of all the gold mines in the world, there's hundreds of gold mines in the world, as we know, uh, but there's only somewhere between 15 and 30 uh, tier one mines really around the planet. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's what really, uh, what we're really looking at here at uh, the Dixie Project, our discovery, is it, uh, in terms of the dimensions and the gold content and uh, the fact that it all goes right to surface, uh, right beside a highway, uh, right beside a power line, and about a 15-minute drive from the nearest big mine, um, mm-hmm. those factors all together lead you to think that it could be one of these big Tier 1 deposits. And those aren't worth a few hundred million dollars. Those are worth, uh, generally, billions and billions of dollars. And they form the cornerstones of global gold production. So if Great Bear, as a relatively small new company, has indeed found a Tier 1 deposit, uh, the valuation metrics here are very different from what people are used to seeing in the market. And that's why uh, it takes a couple of years uh, to define what you have uh, because the volume is so big and uh, the valuation, it takes a bit of education. And uh, once you're getting through that initial resource publication, which we expect in the relatively near term, then you've got, as we say, the proof in the pudding. You have the numbers out uh, that show that sort of tier one potential or that tier one status. And that's where uh, I think investors, uh, not traders, but investors, Mm -hmm. uh, really Mm -hmm. have an opportunity to take advantage of something. Right. The investors, the people that look at value long term. And I mean, if you're looking at Detour Lake and uh, Canadian Malarctic that went three to three to four billion dollars without, you know, without that sort of high grade sweetener near the surface, all these things that you just mentioned uh, against a market cap that's around 800 million now or something like that, certainly uh, yeah. certainly would suggest there's a lot. Now, I know you're doing a lot of aggressive drilling. You just stepped up your drill program. You just raised some more money. Uh, talk to us about your drill program this year and its objectives and what you're hoping to to accomplish and how soon might we expect to see uh, your maiden resource? Yeah, that's a great question. Now, we, uh, we just completed a $70 million Canadian raise, and that gives us mm-hmm. about $100 million in the bank, which is mm-hmm. enough money for, say, two solid years, very, very aggressive drilling and resource construction. So what we're expecting to see is this year a minimum of over 200 drill holes. It could be 200 to 300 drill holes that are going to be completed on the project. By the time that's done, uh, there'll be somewhere in the neighborhood of 600 or 700 drill holes on the project, and that should give us enough information to define that Tier 1 uh, type resource that we expect to see, but certainly to provide that maiden resource to the market. And I think that's going to come uh, either around the end of this year or the beginning of next year. I don't have the exact timing because the results inform the drill plans, but that's what it's looking like to us is that well, about a year from now, you'll have uh, that proof, that uh, maiden resource number public, and people will see that tier one type status if what we're thinking is correct. Yeah, and uh, do you expect the the maiden resource to be over that four to five kilometer uh, strike length, or will it be confined to the sort of the center of that? 
I think what we'll see is, uh, I guess the, the way the analogy I'd use is the tip of the iceberg analogy. Um, so what we have in this area in a lot of big gold deposits of this type is many kilometers vertically of extent. So from the surface down to well over a mile depth, uh, you would have gold mineralization developed. I think, uh, based on what we're seeing, and this is what the analysts that cover Great Bear think as well, uh, so we can point to them, is that even between just the surface and somewhere down to 300 or 400 meters depth. So really just scratching the surface, I think defining the mineralization along, say, about uh, four kilometers of strike length at the LP fault and uh, the same sort of shallow depth on the adjacent Dixie Lemon end zones, I think that way we're going to have something that really looks like one of these Tier 1 type resources. And the upside will be all the additional gold mineralization present below that. So when we come out with that resource number, we'll already have done deeper drilling because we've already done it on two of our three big zones. And uh, in that way, you'll see whatever the number is, you'll multiply it in your head by 2x Mm -hmm. or 3x, whatever the case is, and it will show you that upside long-term potential on the project. Well, I think that's when uh, investors might start to see the share price. Appreciate a bit from where it's been. Uh, You, uh, I I have to ask you about, you've added um, a new chairman your company, and I, I think he maybe you just talk about that a little bit because he's a very impressive, he's a very impressive background. Yeah, Mike Kenyon uh, joined us in June of last year, and uh, Mike has been involved in uh, until recently he was the CEO of uh, Detour uh, Gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, he's been involved in a number of big projects, like big mine builds uh, all over the world, and big project sales to major mining companies. And uh, Mike is somebody. It's probably sold about, uh, I think, collectively more than four to five billion dollars worth of mines to these big producers. So his guidance in Great Bear has been invaluable. And it's really a reflection like uh, with Mike and with some of the investors that are now joining the Great Bear shareholder registry through the last placement, what we're seeing is like really there's two strategies you can build a company around. One of them is to bring all the people in up front really early on. And that way, you know, from a share price perspective, they're invested at a dollar or $2 and they're probably out of the story by, you know, $4 or $5. Or you can do like what Great Bear did, keep the share count low, uh, have your success early on and spend money carefully. And then you bring in these qualified people and you bring in like the last placement, we had 14 different sophisticated institutional investors initiating positions in Great Bear. And if they initiate their shareholdings and they initiate their participation at a level of something like $12, $14, $15, then the upside is typically, uh, you know, what they're looking for is they're looking for the returns on top of that. So it's a very different philosophy from how most companies are built. But I look forward to adding more talent and more of these sort of sophisticated, large institutional gold investors over time. I think that's very beneficial and supportive of growth in share value for our investors. Yeah, indeed. It sounds great. Uh, just one, one, we're really out of time now, but I want to ask you about the royalty spinoff. Is that something we're going to hear more about sometime soon? Yeah, I would imagine, Jay, you're going to see some announcements in the fairly near future uh, and likely... Uh, likely there'll be uh, something um, something in uh, before too long, and I think uh, you know the objective there is to get that as a publicly uh, trading listed company, and uh, anybody that receives spin out shares, uh, you know, from Great Bear as part of that spin out process uh, a few months back, they should be looking at those carefully in the near future. Wonderful. Looking forward to it. 
Chris, I want to thank you so much for spending the time with us because uh, this is a, a really great story. A lot of people not paying a lot of attention to it right now, uh, but I think that uh, they might want to start doing so again. So thank you for being with us, and uh, we'll look to keep up with you going forward for sure. All right, folks, so we do have to go to break now, but don't go away. Alistair McLeod will be with me right after we come back, and uh, he's going to talk about uh, gold as money and why it's inevitable. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Alistair McLeod. Voice America is available on your Google connected device. Okay, Google, play Turning Hard Times into Good Times podcast on iHeartRadio. Try it today. Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSXV and GTBAF on the OTCQX, is a gold exploration company focused on their district-scale Dixie Project in the renowned Red Lake Mining District of Ontario. Having made multiple high-grade near-surface gold discoveries, GBR's capital efficiency has allowed them to be fully funded to complete a very active 300,000-meter drill program through 2021. Stay up to date on what's been considered one of the best performing exploration stocks in the last three years by visiting greatbearresources.ca. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and we have Alistair McLeod with us again today. Um, it's really good to have him, and uh, just for those of you who may not be familiar with Alistair, although I think most of you probably are because he is such a frequent guest, um, goldmoney.com research, the research page at goldmoney.com. Alistair, every Thursday of every week, puts out a very important, I think a very must-read essay about current market conditions um, pertaining most often to gold uh, and uh, he is it's an in, well probably the most important piece that I read for my work every week so I, I really think people should pay attention to it so it's uh, goldmoney.com and the research page here thanks for joining me again Alistair that's my pleasure Jay you know I want to uh, have you talk a little bit to our listeners about two articles you've recently written, one February 18th, titled The Future of Money and Gold, uh, The Future of Money is Gold, and then February 25th, that's uh, money, Monetary Inflation, The Next Step. Uh, it would seem as though we're probably on to some monetary inflation now. We're seeing commodity prices rise fairly dramatically, copper and a lot of the base metals, uh, the food, um, a lot of food, uh, items have gone up, uh, the grains and so forth, as Michael Oliver reminds us. Uh, the uh, commodities have been dormant for so long, and he sees uh, gold and silver, gold is especially as the leader of the commodity bull market, uh, and that they've been on a breather for seven or eight months or so, 
uh, in commodities that are starting to catch up. And that, I think, is giving people some concern about inflation, the bond market starting to spike up a bit. Uh, but I'd like to talk to you first of all, have you fo- maybe focus first on the monetary inflation article of February 25th. Um, I believe that you and I both see inflation as a rise in the money supply. Is that right? Uh, yes, that's correct, Jay. I mean, um, in classical economics, it was always understood that inflation was um, inflation in the quantity of money. Right. And the consequence of that was rising prices. So that's the way around it is. But, of course, modern economists put it the other way around. They just say inflation is uh, rise in the general level of prices. Yeah. So when money is created, money is, is pumped into the system. It can go either into financial assets. It can go anywhere, but it can go into financial assets, bidding up the stocks and bonds. And, of course, that's what we've been seeing in spades. And uh, that doesn't get counted then as inflation. But it certainly is a redistribution of income that's taking place, isn't it, when that yes. takes place? Yeah, yes, that's right. I, um, the way to look at it um, is uh, think in terms of parts of the economy. Uh, if you have financial assets and financial assets are generally rising in value, then actually what's happening is that with respect to financial assets as a whole, the purchasing power of the currency is falling. Um, if there was a sort of random, you know, some some financial assets increasing in price and others falling in price. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a general mix. Then mm-hmm. you wouldn't be able necessarily to turn around and say the cause of it is actually the purchasing power of the money changing. But when everything is going in the same direction, you can certainly say that. Um, you're not a big believer in velocity of money as playing a part, and I guess that's because the monetary the monetary aggregates are there. So, I mean, some people like uh, Daniel D. Martino Booth the other day was talking about a lack of velocity. And some people are saying, well, we're not going to have to worry about rising commodity prices because there's no velocity. People aren't spending. They're just keeping their money under a mattress, so to speak. But you're not a big believer in that concept, are you? Uh, no, I'm not. Um, it's the velocity thing. The, the reason it, rise, it, it, it arises is that if, if you look at the original um, – uh, equation of exchange, and in, in other words, the relationship between money and prices. Um, it was clear to uh, those that put together the um, the concept and then subsequently the equation that a change in the quantity of money was not translated automatically into um, a change in. Uh, the general level of prices. But in this case, I mean, they would use GDP, if you like, as the other side of the equation. So what they do is they introduce a factor. They introduce a new element, which they have called velocity. Mm -hmm. Now, you can get any equation you like to balance. Let's say the equation (laughs) is is shoes are equal to bottles of gin. Uh Now, technically, they're not. But if you put in a variable, so you say shoes times a variable are the equivalent of or equal to gin, then your equation balances. And it'll always balance. Why? Because the variable will always change to, to take up the slack. And that actually is, is all that velocity um, uh, element is in, 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 in the monetary equation. Um, it is actually no more than that. It doesn't. So changes in velocity don't actually tell you anything. Um, I mean, it, the better way to look at it is to think conceptually that if you have an economy uh, which is run on sound money and free markets, then uh, money will be scarce, 
but people will use it efficiently. Mm-hmm. And uh, but if, on the other hand, um, uh, you 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 have fiat currency and you have a, a central bank who who weaponizes that uh, fiat currency in the name of trying to manage the economy, then uh, the relationship uh, uh, with the quantity of money uh, is no longer that money is scarce. You find that more and more money tends to get pumped into the economy by the central bank. Mm-hmm. And those are the, basically the two conditions that exist. And we can see today that with uh, M1 in America, which um, incidentally they have changed to include uh, savings, yeah. uh, you know, is, is, is now, it, I think I worked it out this morning, it is 92.5% of GDP. Wow. I mean, this is, you know, so M1 is 92.5% of GDP. Well, admittedly, actually, I, I must say that um, the other thing you need to do is to put in the government's uh, uh, general account at the Fed, because that's a bank account just like it, like yours mm-hmm. at your bank. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that should be included, but uh, the Fed doesn't include it, which I think is a big mistake in the way that constructs the the, the uh, monetary, um, uh, you know, the money supply figures. Mm-hmm. Um, but you see, this again is another reason for not looking at something like velocity of circulation, because mm-hmm. first we need to define what M1 is mm-hmm. or M2 is. And there are all sorts of things you can either include or not include. Mm-hmm. And the Fed takes the decision as to what it will include. Now, that is not based on what you and I want, What how you and I use money. It's the way the Fed looks at money. So mm-hmm. the whole idea, the whole concept of applying uh, mathematical economics to things like money supply, velocity, and all the rest of it is actually fatally flawed right from the start. We've talked about in the past um, that the the government defines inflation. Any it, it keeps changing the rules, of course. And you know, John Williams has talked about it. You and I have talked about it. Uh, your concept, your belief is as 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 is my belief. John Williams and others that have looked at it that the actual cost of living. So forget about inflation in terms of the, just the money supply uh, and the you know financial asset inflation, all that. But just in terms of what it might cost a family of four to stay alive, you know, to pay the rents and buy the food and transportation, all of its basic living costs. Uh, the Fed is, you know, tries to, or the, or the government tries to suggest that it's around 2%, nothing serious, nothing really to worry about here. Your thoughts uh, are that it's much higher than that, I believe. That is the, yeah. sort of the, the cost of staying alive. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I think the experience of anyone living in America and anyone living in almost any other country, um, even countries with alleged uh, deflation, in other words, falling prices, will mm-hmm. say that that's not the reality. I mean, you know, it's very difficult to know how much the cost of living actually is rising. Um, and the other thing that I would say is that the, the concept of the cost of living is really the general price level. How is that changing? Now, the general price level is a theoretical um, concept, mm-hmm. but it's not something you can measure because uh, your uh, general price level differs from my general price level. And, um, you know, uh, our parents who are probably pensioners, if they're still alive, Mm -hmm. their price, you know, their general price level experience differs as well. So, you know, it's it's um, it's 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 really just a concept and uh, trying to um, sort of steer an economy by um, looking at 
uh, the monetary effect as it hits prices uh, produced by a department which is um, uh, for very good reasons determined to keep those uh, evidence of the price increases down because of the cost to government of indexation um, you know it's like um, driving along uh, looking in the rear view mirror it's it, you know <laughs> it is absolutely crazy and I think I think it's it, it, it is a far better thing to really understand um, what money is um, uh, the the economic effects of uh, unsound money uh, and um, uh, you know for example one thing that uh, nobody ever says in government is that um, you know printing money transfers wealth from the ordinary people and by ordinary people I mean the producers in an economy the people mm -hmm. who, who who you want to produce more to um, you know make the economy better what you're doing with by printing money is transferring wealth from them because you're lowering their salaries, you're lowering their savings, uh, and uh, you're giving it to the government. I, you know, is is this a, is this the way to progress as an economy? The answer is no. But no. governments do, you know, they ignore that. Um, they ignore that because they are determined to uh, pursue uh, a modern macroeconomic. A neo-Keynesian uh, approach to managing the economy. They believe they've got a role in making the economy better. And not only that, but also because they run budget deficits and those have become continual rather than over, a, over you know, sort of balancing over the cycle. Um, they need that financed. And the only way it can finance with reluctant taxpayers is basically the magic money tree. Um, you know, what the central bank does. And uh, you put all those things together and you can see that actually this idea that uh, by expanding the quantity of money, which has been really dramatic over the last, uh, well, certainly since last March, Mm -hmm. uh, you can see that actually it is just impoverishing us in a way which is not recorded. Yeah, and how is it going to be financed? That's the that's the question. Um, we're seeing interest rates rise now. Do you think those are are rising because of the the bond markets are sniffing out inflation? They're sniffing. They're starting to realize that uh, that the dollar's purchasing power is, is declining rather dramatically. Uh, or do you think, you know, the happy talk, of course, would have us believe that the bond rates are rising because the economy is booming and everything is just honky-dory? Uh, I don't believe you think that, but why do you think the rates are starting to rise so dramatically? And what is that going to uh, – when I say dramatically, they're still very low, but they're, they've gone up relatively fast, the 10-year Treasury, for example. Uh, yeah. Why do you think they're rising, and, and what kind of uh, problems is that going to pose for the Fed and for our government? Well, they're rising for one very simple reason, and that is you've got an awful lot of foreigners who own um, U.S. Treasury debt, mm -hmm. portfolio investments, uh, cash in the in the banks. I think the cash in the banks and uh, short-term um, uh, 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 bills are around, but they're over $6 trillion. I mean, uh -huh. it's foreign-owned. So put yourself in the shoes of a foreigner, and you see um, that not only are you getting paid nothing in your bank, but also, as I argued in that article, which you referred to earlier, it looks like um, uh, we could get a situation where um, your deposits might be refused by the bank because mm -hmm. they haven't the balance sheet capacity, um, and uh, you know they will they will refuse it basically by um, saying, well, if you deposit your money with us, then uh, we're going to have to charge you for it. In other words, a negative interest rate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, under those circumstances, you can see that it's um, 
changes, if you like, the relationship between the value of the dollar today and the value of the dollar tomorrow. Now, the value of the dollar tomorrow, particularly with all this money printing, you know, just from, bear in mind that you're looking at it through a foreigner's eyes, um, basically means that you are going to have to have a higher rate of interest compensation for holding on to dollars, which are going to be worth less tomorrow than mm-hmm. they are today. Yeah, and as the situation progresses, you know, so you can see this is why interest rates uh, have to rise. I mean, they reflect um, uh, the loss of purchasing power of the dollar as anticipated between now and say a year's time or two years time or 10 years time. Now, on that basis, uh, you could easily argue that not only is the dollar overvalued, but um, you would need to see the 10 year uh, U.S. Treasury yield rise quite significantly, even from here, before mm-hmm. you could um, uh, make a, a case for hanging on to your foreign currency, uh, mm-hmm. your uh, investments in dollars. Um, given also that at the same time, uh, bond yields in 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 Europe and Japan are also now rising. I mean. You know, it's, okay, they're negative um, out to, you know, sort of X date. But, I mean, we're no longer looking at a situation where um, uh, the the German bond yields are, uh, are now, you know, 10 years are negative. No, you know, the yields are moving up. And, of course, that, again, reduces um, the uh, relative attraction of um, holding dollars as opposed to euros. So... It's, it's factors like that that start the general um, collapse, if you like, in bond prices uh, and uh, takes uh, the pricing of the bond markets away from the control of the Fed. I mean, it wasn't so long ago we were talking about Operation Twist, but I think it's going to be almost impossible for the Fed to do that and maintain, um, uh, you know, sort of a low gradient of interest rates from uh, short term through to long term right. without destroying the dollar. Right. Uh, so Operation Twist would be to uh, would be to sell the short end of the curve and buy the long end. I guess is what the Fed would do to try to force long term rates down. Right. And. Yeah. I think I think what they would do, rather than sell the short end, <laughs> is, is they would just they'd buy. They'd buy the short end. They would just buy the, you know, buy mediums and longs, and just yeah. <laughs> try and suppress the yields. Yes. I see. Okay, and uh, and and so what it means, though, they're going to have to create money to buy those. So so it's it's, it's just it seems to me that as to, in order to suppress the interest rates, which will it's it will start to see the the U.S. government not even look, you know, it would be obviously. Uh, insolvent at some point in time. I mean, how much, you know, and what is it going to do to the equity markets? I mean, we see just a, a teeny little bit of a rise in rates, and it sends the the equity markets for a tail into a tailspin. And it it just seems to me that we're going to have to. I mean, the only recipe that I can see, Alistair, is that the Fed has to create more and more money faster and faster and keep shoveling it into the system to try to keep it from, you know, to try to keep the the thing from imploding into some sort of a uh, financial market collapse. Yes, I mean this is this is why I, I keep on citing the you know the John Law experience of exactly uh-huh. three hundred years ago. What the Fed are doing with QE is basically they're trying to perpetuate a wealth effect because QE goes um, from the Fed uh, through the commercial banks to pension funds and insurance companies, and the pension funds and the insurance companies end up with cash having sold. Uh, some of their bonds to the Fed through 
through the system. And it has to be done like that because the only accounts uh, at the Fed are held by commercial banks. The Fed does mm -hmm. not have direct access to pension funds and insurance companies. So the result is that uh, pension funds and insurance companies, um, you know, sort of, if you like, they buy a bit more risk, like, uh, you know, go for corporate bonds, maybe adjust their portfolios to have a bit more equities. So that spreads the wealth effect, if you like. Mm -hmm. uh, it also makes it cheaper for the zombies to finance themselves in the junk bond market. You know? mm -hmm. So there are all these sort of reasons why uh, the Fed should do QE from the Fed's point of view. Um, but, you know, on the one hand, it's all very well talking about pushing money into financial asset markets. But um, if at the same time uh, you are driving interest rates down, then... Mm -hmm. You know, effectively, you're working against. Uh, so, sorry, I'm sorry. If, if in, if at the same time you fail to control the the, the interest rates, particularly mm -hmm. at the end, then you risk losing control of that uh, wealth effect of puffing up asset prices. And this is exactly what John Law did in 1720, 1719, 1720. And when the project failed, it failed because he had to print so much money. Uh, that he, he he effectively crashed the currency and the bubble popped at the same time. All uh, right. Rising interest rates is the first sign of that John Law experience being repeated, not just in France, but for the whole world. I mean, this is yeah. very, very serious. So we're seeing that happen now, in your view. That's what we're starting to see. Now, with just a couple of minutes left, I, my apologies for not giving you more time to talk about this, but the future of money is gold. In that article, you talk about how the politicians are going to be almost forced at some point to uh, to go to honest money. Uh, with the time we have left, a couple of minutes or so, can you make that case? And I'll keep my mouth shut. Yes. The other side of the John Law bubble is that not only did uh, the Mississippi venture um, collapse, but also the currency collapsed. And the currency actually collapsed uh, entirely on the foreign exchanges. And I think that um, uh, the, the, that experience will be repeated here, which basically means that um, so long as governments insist on having fiat, they will have no money. They will have mm -hmm. money that has got no purchasing power whatsoever. So the only way they can stabilize it, and being cynical, let's say the politicians draw their salaries, <laughs> uh, is to uh, anchor it to gold. A lot of people seem to think that Bitcoin might be the future, um, but central banks don't own Bitcoin. I mean, the way the scheme would have to work is that you have fiat currency distributed. You have to make that convertible into gold at the holder of the fiat money's option at a price which you can sustain. And not only exchangeable into gold, but you must issue gold coinage. And that's the whole point. So that, uh, you know, in America, you'd have golden eagles and the UK. We've mm -hmm. still we've got sovereigns. We've still got mm -hmm. sovereigns. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's legal tender. Um, so you can see that the means is there to do it, to stabilize the whole situation. This is going to be so total that they will have no option but to pursue that route. All right. And uh, I would just say to folks that want to get a little more detail, because we don't have the time for Alistair to explain it all here, go read his last article uh, on that topic at uh, goldmoney.com. Uh, and uh, he fills in the, the blanks very well there. Uh, so I, I highly recommend that. Thank you so much, Alistair, once again, for being with us and explaining these complicated topics to our to our listeners. It's uh, it's greatly appreciated and and uh, very very helpful. I'm sure. That's that is my it. 
Yeah, uh, thank Sorry. you, Alistair. Well, that is, that's all the time we have this week, folks. Next week, Frank Holmes is our a guest, and I expect to have a surprise guest as well. Until then, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. 